at ThinkLab. We're practicing what we preach in this digital world. You, as our target audience, vote with your listens, clicks, and digital interactions with our brand. And we hear you. Our article, The Rise of the Dealer Designer, remains one of our most interacted with pieces of content. So we're bringing you a deeper dive into some of the ideas from that article. Whether you're someone from a commercial real estate firm trying to figure out what the heck a dealer does, maybe someone from an A&D firm who has questioned the design services part of a dealer's business, or maybe a manufacturer who's trying to figure out if the dealer designer should be a selling focus for your brand, or even if you work for a dealership yourself, there will be something in this episode for you. This is Amy Devers, host of Clever. My podcast brings you conversations you're not going to hear anywhere else with the visionaries and creative forces who shape our world and culture. It's a compelling mix of raw candor and honest shop talk that reveals the humanity behind the design of the world around us. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Head over to surroundpodcast.com or follow Clever wherever you get your podcasts. You might have your heart set on a particular product, but if by chance that lead time is 32 weeks right now, which we've heard of some of those lead times lately, maybe there's another product that would be a better solution for this particular project to get you in on time, in budget, make choices of those different options when you're running into challenges, which we're all running into right now. To have someone that's so knowledgeable to help you through that, it's just a really great resource. The voice you just heard was from Shelly Rosetta with Solomon Coyle. Now, while our passion at ThinkLab is in the design realm, wherever those designers are employed, Solomon Coyle is the leading dealer organization helping contract furniture dealers achieve financial and operational performance through benchmarking. In this episode, Shelley will join Meredith Campbell, who you may recognize from our Think Lab team and her podcast, The Learning Objective, or from a previous episode this season. Both will bring great perspective to the question, why invest in relationships with dealer designers? They'll pull from their own history, industry perspective, and of course, research. Welcome to season four of Design Nerds Anonymous, the podcast that sparks curiosity at the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Amanda Schneider, founder and president at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow Design Group. Let's dive in. Meet our panelists. I'm Shelley Rosetta and I'm with Solomon Coyle. And our goal is to really continue to lift up the industry to make sure that both manufacturers and dealers are running the best businesses that they possibly can. I'm Meredith Campbell. I'm part of the research and content development team at ThinkLab. And I have been involved in some of the dealer designer research specifically through our most recent hackathon. I'm also the host of our Learning Objective podcast. And so Amanda and I have worked really closely on this topic and exploring a little bit more from the research side. Our topic is really around why invest in these relationships with dealers, specifically dealer designers. So I'd love to come back to you with one word or phrase to describe the unique value 
dealer designers provide in the industry today? Meredith? The word that I would choose is clarity because dealer designers have to wade through a lot of complexities and absorb a lot of complexities that we haven't solved for quite yet. Furniture is complicated and there is a lot that goes into it. And so a really good dealer designer, in my experience, has been one that has really clarified this world that can feel very overwhelming, even for people who specialize in furniture. And Shelly, what would your word be? Oh, I would just say incredibly knowledgeable and detailed. And again, just to piggyback on what Meredith said is that the complexity of the manufacturer, just the simple code for a product, you can be up to 45, 60 letters for just one line item of a product. So they have to have just incredible knowledge and detail around the specification process, the project in the products. One product launch for a manufacturer I worked for previously was 14,000 unique SKUs in one product line. I think most people probably don't realize that. I do want to dive in as we kick this topic off to some of the historical tensions, because I think some certainly in the AD community may not be aware of these tensions. Tilly, I'd love to start with you. What do you feel like are some of the historical tensions that are maybe limiting the reach or fulfilling their potential of the dealer designer? I think historically, there's been a perception that dealer designers are more like mechanical drawers and then men's specifiers. But what they really are is they are highly degreed into your design degrees, into your architectural degrees. And so it's just that they chose a different path. And I do think that their brains work a little bit differently. And I would add, just piggybacking on what you said, Shelley, that I think one of the tensions is that they have to be incredibly technical. They have to know down to the smallest minute detail, but they're also even more so today being tasked with coming up with really creative out-of-the-box solutions. And so to find someone and to have that all in one package of someone who can have that really technical down to the 14,000 SKUs that you mentioned, Amanda, up to these big picture pushing the envelope, challenges to think differently, exercises that oftentimes come in now, that they're not just like order takers or order collectors, to your point. So I think there's a tension there. But I even think sometimes for dealer designers themselves that they feel like they have to pick an either or. Am I a behind the scenes technical person who doesn't really care to have a lot of client interaction. I just kind of want my account manager or salesperson to sort of tell me what to do. Or am I someone who really loves to be client facing and can really think on my feet? It's interesting that there's almost been this tension of even like these two personalities. You couldn't be both. But if we really dive into the case for investing relationships with dealer designers and why these perceptions are not advantageous anymore. Talk about what has evolved and transpired. I think of the rise of ancillary and how that shifted the role. I think of some of the weight that's on design firms today where they just simply don't have the time that they once did to create the 150-page CHO1 documents with detailed specs. So these historical tensions, why they don't fit anymore and what's changed recently to really create the case for investing in these relationships. Projects today are very complex. They are not one size fits all. You're not ordering over and over again, 500 stations that look exactly the same. You're really having to solve these different spaces and 
what's the function of those different spaces and what's the best products to put in those spaces. What's great about dealer designers is that they have this very broad knowledge. As much as they have the detailed knowledge of the product, they have the broad knowledge of what is out there and what's available and how can we adapt these products to meet the needs of what the goals are for the project. It's so much more complex now. And I think writing alongside the AMD firm is it's the perfect yin yang that AMD designer and the dealer designer together make this perfect match of how you would go to market and get a great result product. I think the biggest thing that I've noticed in the the opportunity for the dealer designer role is decision support. Because we're hearing this at our focus groups, especially that many clients are stuck in indecision and they're a little bit paralyzed. And I believe in the ecosystem, dealer designers probably are the most well-poised to help with some of that decision support. Because if you think about the range of projects they're working on, our friends in you know traditional A&D firms are certainly working on a wide variety of projects, many times a certain niche or maybe a certain client base, but your dealer designer is probably working a greater variety of products. And so their ability to help with that decision support, and especially as we're moving people through the sales cycle, is to help clients really feel confident in the decisions they're making in these kind of unprecedented times where we don't have a lot of data to back up some of the decisions that we're making. And I think you bring up a really interesting point, Meredith, because it's they are true furniture specialists. AD firm designers have to be experts in acoustics and flooring and lead and all of these bigger, broader things. And they can't possibly be in the weeds on all of this detail. Shelly, anything else that you would add to that? With Meredith's comment about the complexity and the, the clarity that's needed, the, there is no crystal ball right now. And you're right. People are frozen in their decision-making process. Do you know when the designers can use tools like live design and be designing in front of them and really allow the customer to see and visualize a space and how it can change? Those are great skill sets that the dealer can bring to the project process. I think that's a great point because a lot of clients are not visually oriented. I think we forget that maybe in this industry because most of us can look at that purple chair and imagine it in gray or look at that 56 inch high panel and imagine it at 64 inches higher, but our clients are not that visual. Can you explain to anyone who's not familiar what live design is, how that works and why it's unique to the dealer designer? Live design is whether you're doing it in person or these days you're doing it virtually. It's really setting up room scenarios and being able to pull those up in front of the customer and talk through the functional details of the space or the workstation, and then allowing the customer to throw out ideas and the team to talk about ideas. What if we change this? What if we made that higher? What if we change that to be a longer sofa or a larger chair or the color changes. And they can make those changes right there in real time. And before some of those things took so long to communicate back and forth between the customer and the dealership, 
that it just delayed the decision-making process because they really couldn't see how it was changing in front of them. So now when they change it, not only does it change the visual part of it, but it also changes the budget too. They can see how their changes are reflecting and changing the budget. I wanted to add just for some contrast about the way that it was and what live design does, Shelly, because, you know, before the client was like, oh, well, I wonder what this would be like in a taller panel. Are we sure we like that panel height? And so then it would go back through the salesperson from the dealership or the account manager who would then filter it to the designer and say, hey, can you show it in these options instead? And hey, can we rework the budget just so we can get like a comparison? And then it would go back through the game of telephone back to the client, they would meet and talk about it. So-and-so gets pulled into the process that wasn't in it before. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, actually we wanna see these other three options. And it just goes back to that decision support too. These things are happening in real time and it eliminates that game of telephone and brings the designer into that process. A lot of times more face-to-face with the client too. While we always talk about technology being like this great enabler, in many ways, it does take this new skill set of someone to be able to help narrow down those options and not let things get far into left field and save us all from ourselves a little bit too. I love that idea of save us from ourselves. And I think that really, especially as we talk to the A&D community that's working on all these space designs of which furniture is a part. If anyone followed our furniture forum work that was done in 2017 in a couple of different markets that was really around looking at the traditional furniture bid process and why it's broken with a lot of of suggestions about how to improve that. If anyone did not follow that, you can find a lot of articles about it on the Huffington Post. Just search Amanda Schneider, Furniture Forum, Huffington Post. But we learned in that furniture can make up around 80% of a FF&E package in some cases. Yet today, especially with the rise of ancillary, it can be one of the most time-consuming and least profitable pieces of a design firm's business. Now, we understand why they don't want to give up the furniture. You can design the most beautiful space, but if it's got crappy furniture in it or something that didn't fit the same direction, it's going to have a huge effect on that end design, both in the visual of the space and in how it functions. But you add into all of that today's litany of supply chain issues and, to your point, kind of these less repeatable floor plates. I'd love for you to give some advice directly to these A&D firms about how the dealers can help and how they should go about starting that process. I think it's a combination of, is it the salesperson? Is it the designer? The answer is it's the team, right? It's the dealer team. They have so many great resources. One of those being the dealer designer. Those dealer designers are doing this every single day, eight hours a day. They are dealing with these manufacturers and specifying furniture. So over and over again, they have an intricate relationship to these manufacturers. And not only that, they have these relationships with the manufacturer's reps. So they have these great resources that they have built around them to help support them, give them information about lead time so that they can help the design firms make good decisions. You might have your heart set on a particular product, but if By chance, that lead time is 32 weeks right now, which we've heard of some of those lead times lately. Maybe there's another product that would be a better solution for this particular project to get you in on time, in budget. And so they're the great resource that can really help you. It's very chaotic because of the supply chain. So 
to have those different options and to have someone that's so knowledgeable to help you through that, it's just a really great resource. I think one of the things that's really important to remember too, especially with the furniture bid, is that it's only the beginning of the process. Even though you think you've won that bid and, oh, this is it, like we've won, that's the end. It's really just the beginning. Right? And that team, like Shelly mentioned, the account manager, salesperson, dealer designer, become an integral part of that, that project team. Many times, depending on the size of the project, they're part of the OAC meetings and you develop a rapport as a designer with this team, just like you do anyone else who is part of the project team. So even though they are a vendor who's providing a service and you're evaluating them based on a bid, I would encourage designers to really evaluate them based on a team member that's going to be critical in that day two part of it. And even after the designer is out of the process and the client is moved in and there isn't necessarily an event that's happening, like a renovation, many times those dealer designers are the ones who take their precious project in their hands and manage it throughout the life of that space. If there are moves, ads, reconfigures, those types of things. So really thinking that the bid isn't this like end point, but it's really the beginning of that project team working together and thinking about how, again, we heard this so much in our focus groups, especially for Hackathon, that what designers value more than anything from their manufacturers, distributors, is someone who can save them from themselves. Just because like you mentioned before, Amanda, they have to know so many things that having that partner who could come alongside of them is just crucial. We talk about risk mitigation all the time, and that's part of that saving them from themselves conversation. And it really is someone who can make the customer feel safe, mitigate those risks long-term. Because like you said, Meredith, this is a long-term relationship. That dealer team is going to be there for the next 7, 10, 15 years with that customer. And I would say that was one of the interesting things about the furniture forum too, as we look at this process is ultimately when the A&D firm is off to their next project, the manufacturer is off, to, everyone's off to the next thing. The commercial real estate team is off to the next project. The dealer is the one that's left with that client. So I also feel like there's a piece of this that is a caretaking of your client is to make sure they get with a solid dealer that's going to take care of them beyond just that project. I want to go back to something that you said, Meredith, about protecting them from themselves. And I want you guys to just really summarize what the biggest benefit to these A&D designers are, because I feel like the, the A&D designer, your job is to push the client out of their comfort zone. They've hired you to be creative and maybe unexpected applications or really informed applications to push them beyond what they came to you asking for. So Meredith, when you say protect them from themselves, now I think that that's it because it allows that a and firm designer to soar where they soar, but with those guardrails to know that they are protected. So if you had to add to that to just say why this is so important, what would you add? Empowered, because I think that's what a good dealer designer does for an A&D firm. And I would say safety net. You talked about the guardrails. It does allow them to really get outside of the box and really stretch the customer from their comfort zone but still provide that just soft landing so that their project can be very successful. I feel like some of this conversation came up earlier, but if you really had to throw down a gauntlet about how to think differently, how to act differently, how to behave differently in ways that would benefit their clients as a result of partnering with these dealer designers, how would you tell them 
to think about the most impactful ways to truly partner? I think mine is fairly simple, is really that mindset shift of that dealer designer being a resource to assist you, to come alongside you as a vital member of your project team and to enable you to do those things that really matter to you about your project, rather than the historical view as the dealer designer just sort of being the person who puts the order together or the person who puts the parts and pieces together the right way after everything has been submitted and some of the ways that you can really bring them into the fold to help support you and clarify all of the dizzying options that exist. And some of the landmines that we said too, like the guardrails that the dealer designer can provide, that it doesn't have to just be this really clean handoff, like I've created the bid, cut, now you're up. Now take the order and make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I would say the exact same thing. Instead of having that handoff, have it be more hand in hand throughout the process and truly, like Meredith said, just look at them as a partner throughout the process. The RFP process itself is somewhat antiquated. And if we could even move to more of an RFQ process where you are interviewing and you are seeing who clicks. And when you say RFQ, I assume that means less focused on price, more focused on fit. Is there anything else that you would add to that? No, I think that's exactly what we're thinking. Um, because I think what we've seen historically Pricing is always really close. I mean, if, if you truly are looking at kind of, you know, apples to apples specs, you know, go with the people that you feel can service the customer the best. That's who you want. Because at that point, what happens is everyone becomes much more transparent and everything becomes out in the open. Maybe think of shifting to more of an RFQ process rather than the whole RFP process, which I think it's been around for a long time. There's, a, I think there's a way to improve the process. Thinking about that design role, and especially as we go back to the conversation where we started, where we were really talking about maybe some of these historical things that have held dealers back. So if we think about challenging dealers to think about the most impactful ways to help maybe the local design team gain confidence, what would you say to dealer management, dealer sales reps, the other teams surrounding these dealer designers? I think that that is a key part. The role of the designer, the dealer designer is changing to positions, you know, where they're almost becoming designer, seller, because we are elevating them and we're getting them to move upstream in the process. So I think that that's saying seller. Um, it doesn't really mean seller, but it just means we're trying to move them upstream in the process. There are, like you said, there are going to be those designers who they don't want to be out in front of customers. They are fine, you know, being in the background and where they felt comfortable. But I, I think I would challenge all of them to just push a little bit out of their comfort zone and see how they can grow their career within. The dealers that I see research pointing to will be successful and evolve with the industry are getting out of just looking at their own process improvement, like getting out of just how do we move from A to B to C more efficiently, or how do we do this in their box? And really looking outside of themselves to what's happening with our clients? What's happening with design firms? What are the pain points in the rest of the industry? And how can we plug some holes there versus just what are my pain points? So I see the most opportunity to just really come up with some out of the box thinking, because I think some of those 
challenges and dealers have so many challenges. We know from some of the heat maps that we've seen from pain throughout the process that they have the most pain at all places throughout the process. And so from my point of view, they have the most opportunity if they can really harness that and get out of just their box of their process improvement and look bigger at industry process improvement. Agree, and dealer designers are actually a great place to start there. They are by nature problem solvers, kind of caretakers. They are caretakers of our customers. Know that there is a production part of their job. They have to specify, they have to design. For those who are interested and would like to get out from behind their computer, go to the customer meetings, the face-to-face meetings, be out there at the beginning of the process, be out there with the events that are happening in the community. So I would say for the dealers, invest in those designers and respect the value that they bring to your business. So continue to invest in their continuing education, continue to invest in their membership with things like IIDA and events that they can surround themselves with other designers from A&D and customers and commercial real estate. Let them get out into the community because the more the community knows your people, the better your business will be. Really well said. And I feel like a piece of this is also to challenge the designers within that dealership themselves, because I would say the last 10 years of transition that we've seen has really demanded upskilling from them in some new ways. What would you say to those dealer designers? I would say get out of the historical belief in your head that they've all bought into that they are not part of the overall design process. They're not just order takers, that they truly have value that they can bring to the project way up front. So I would say to them, continue to push their own envelope and try new things, try new applications like, hey, take some some of those existing products and try new creative things with them. And I also want to cue you a little, just because I love that you guys have so many stats specific to dealers. I know that there's been some transition in terms of the percentage of their overall revenue that goes to design. And it's been really hard to recoup that as this world has shifted and changed. So I'd love to help the broader industry just become aware of some of those shifts and changes. So, you know, one of the things that we have seen, I think it's been about five to seven years. So it used to be where there was two sellers to one designer. So that ratio was two sellers to one designer. One designer could handle two sellers. Now that ratio has really moved to one to one because the projects have become much more complex. And it's trending to where two sellers or two designers on the dealers as well. And so what we've also seen is dealers are starting to charge for some of these services of their design team. And a lot of that comes through partnering with A&D firms. So taking some of the load off of the A&D, but still not doing that position. And, but yes, the cost is, I think it's about double from where it was for the cost of those teams versus kind of revenue. And still trending upward. Yeah. So I think that's an important thing for people to realize. And some of your statistics really can speak to that in a bigger way. So maybe they won't be so surprised if they see (laughs) line items for some of these services and things like that. 
I want to move on to our next audience. I want to talk a little bit to manufacture. There are mainline manufacturers that are typically partnered with a dealer. There's lots of open line and a few that are somewhere in between with only certain select dealers. And there's even companies like fabric manufacturers that at Think Lab we're getting more questions from lately. So I want to talk for a minute to these product manufacturers of any variety that are trying to get the attention of these dealer designers. Meredith, I'm going to start with you because I know you're going to talk a little bit about some of our hackathons on survey data. What do we know about the best ways to reach them? The survey data was incredibly insightful for us because it challenged some things we thought and it also reinforced some things that we thought we knew. And it was also, as you said, really um, different for this audience, notably different than other members of the ecosystem. We were looking at A&D firms, we were looking at dealer designers, we were looking at end users, people who, you know, were specifying on behalf of themselves. So we were looking at different points of views, but big three things that I would say were the most impactful about this audience, especially for brands, is that dealer designers preferred brands that enabled them to self-serve on demand with digital tools above and beyond anything else, including having had a past good experience with that brand, including I have a local rep I can trust. Now, this is not to say that they don't care about that, but I think it's just worth noting that this was twice as important to this audience than to any other category of that specifier that we surveyed. Dealer designers, they were the most likely to want to self-serve digitally, and that kind of was why they would choose one brand over the other. The other thing is that they were the most eager to learn new technologies that would make their job easier, even if it takes more time to learn them. They're the most likely to specify products from aggregators, digital aggregators. That's like Material Bank, My Resource Library, those types of things. And when they are narrowing down product, they were the most likely to say that they would just rather self-serve digitally, while every other member of the ecosystem said that they preferred to talk to a specialist within the brand. That was a notable difference there as well. Now, when it comes to human, they still need their humans. This is not to say that they're digital only, but they do believe that they can be served by a remote team of people from the brand just as well as they can the local rep. But when they do want to speak to someone, they really want to interact with their local rep very early on. They want their local rep to bring them that general awareness, general knowledge to do their job. But then it's not necessarily something really specific to the project, whereas they're happy to speak to anyone from the brand who can give them the most accurate, best answer. Shelly, I'd love to come to you again as we think about these different brands that maybe should be thinking about the dealer designer in a new way today than maybe they have in the past. What do we know about them? What products are they interested in? And where do you see the most opportunity so in talking to the dealer team and especially senior designers, what they say their teams are most worried about, there's not enough time and errors, the avoidance of errors. So when I think Meredith was talking about being able to self-serve, that's because they only have so much time and there's a lot of things that they're juggling on their plate in a very small amount of time in, in the work week. And so they want to have that information readily available at the time that they need it, not call the rep. They love their reps. They have great relationships with them, but they just need great tools for specification. They need great visual and specification tools so that they can clearly understand the products that they are specifying. 
And then those tools help mitigate the risk of errors because it is truly something that gives them anxiety because of the complex nature of our business, the chances for errors are always there and they can be truly costly to the dealership and to the customer. So you try to avoid those at all costs. Any of the brands that are really trying to attract a relationship with the dealers, give them the tools that they need to work on their own, but be there as a resource when they want to call you and talk deeper into how you know a product works, the application, the support details of that be there for them. The other thing on top of that is a lot of the manufacturers have these really easy design your own chair and they have these budgeting tools that are really easy to use. Sometimes even though the designer may not be touching some of those, the seller can touch that. And what that does ultimately is take one plate off the designer that he or she doesn't have to juggle. And maybe there can be a higher level budget that's created by someone else. And it doesn't even have to touch the designer's desk until it's ready to become a project. So anything that we can take off their desk or help their job be more efficient, accurate, that is what they're looking for. Shelly, I think that you bring up a really good point because even though some of those may not be technologies that the dealer designer necessarily uses, what they do is they take things off of their plate. So things like budgeting tools, Amanda, I know we've heard this over and over again in our research so that the dealer designer isn't having to create budgets from scratch and that we're not having so much of a blank page approach that there are thought starters or typicals that are already out there that are directional and budgetary and that we're talking in price per square foot, that there's phenomenal imagery that are thought starters so that the dealer designer isn't having to create a bunch of thought starters. So some of those tools that are complementary into the sales process that really help the client up front with that decision support, but maybe free up the designer to do some of the other things. I also want to go back to something else that was said around the different systems that the A&D firms are in versus the dealers. We have a fascinating diagram and picture, if you will, kind of a line through the middle. And above the line are the tools that dealers use. And below the line are the tools that design firms use. And we call that middle line the PDF line. Because what happens is the dealer is doing something in system A, and then it crosses the PDF line and goes into the design firms. If you look at the bid process or even the communication process, a lot of firms are using Revit. A lot of firms are using some of the more design softwares, maybe Illustrator, you know, maybe Canva, depending on what they're doing. A lot of the dealers are using things like Excel and PowerPoint to create. I think if we look at that time waste, not only for the dealer, but for our industry, and ultimately that cost comes back to the client. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to get better here, but some of the systems are still a little glitchy. So if you had to challenge product manufacturers or brand partners about the most impactful ways to support these dealer designers or gain the loyalty of these dealer designers, what would you say? There are three things I would say, and this is really driven by the research, Amanda, that Number one, prioritize those self-serve digital tools in the places that matter most to this audience. Equip them with a team of people from your brand and upskill your local representatives to provide that value and that education upfront where we know that they really, again, value that local person the most. So two of my three matched Meredith exactly, those tools and those resources. And then my third would be do not stop with your research and development of new products. 
They are always hungry for really great products that answer the needs of customers and the challenges that they're trying to solve. So don't cut back on the research and development of getting new products out there. And then once you do get new products out there, Make sure that your dealer teams are trained well on them and they have the resources needed to make sure that those are good solutions for the customers in the A&D firm. I think there's a piece of that that's not only around new products, but also around new applications of existing products and finding ways to really inspire these folks with, especially on the furniture side, of new ways that they can be thinking about it or new ways they can be taking these concepts to their firms. Exactly. Completely agree. Meredith and Shelley, I want to thank you both for your incredible insights and discussions. And to our listeners, if you have questions, comments, suggestions, additional ideas for us on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. As I said at the beginning, you vote with your listens, clicks, and digital interactions, including any response to this episode. So feel free to reach out to any one of us on LinkedIn. That's Amanda Schneider, Meredith Campbell, both with ThinkLab, or Shelley Rosetta with Solomon Coyle. And one last shout out to our season four sponsors, Mannington Commercial, The Mart, and Neocon. Well, folks, this is a wrap on season four. But if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you hit that follow button so you don't miss any of the great content that we have coming up for you in 2023. And if you love our perspective at ThinkLab, be sure to also check out our other podcasts. The Learning Objective, which is the industry's first ever CEU podcast, and Empowered, ThinkLab's partnership podcast with Material Bank, which is focused on ideas and insights for the B2B rep. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Design Nerds Anonymous is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Discover more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of Design Nerds Anonymous was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Samantha Sager.